welcome to the Command Line Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Command Line Gideon, a self-proclaimed hacker, eccentric, and hacktivist. This is my show about the practice and profession of programming, drawing on well over a decade of professional experience and a lifetime spent hacking, the intersection of technology with society and public policy, and anything else clever, elegant, or funny that catches my mind as a diehard technology geek. I finally managed to finish the essay I've been working on, I think, pretty much at this point, a month solid. I'm happy to share. Hopefully you enjoy it. This is part of some contemplation I've been doing to sort of reconnect with the sort of core roots of this podcast, why I care so deeply about technology policy. This is also informed a bit by some personal experience over the years, mostly that moment of finding yourself someplace that you did not expect to be and what that teaches you about how you can change, how you can grow from there through radically accepting where it is that you found yourself, despite never imagining that you would be in those circumstances. And I apologize for being vague. This really touches on some personal stuff that I've talked about here and there, uh, more at a high level, more to share sort of experiential broad strokes than the specifics. Hopefully why radical acceptance is important will come through in the argument itself that I pose about the internet as something exceptional and how we have to, I think, work a little bit to back off from that to understand what the internet actually is, why it's important, and how it animates and supports values that we might be interested in. Before I share the feature with you, though, I do want to share a brief correction. I already posted this on the website pretty much right after the last episode dropped. In the course of talking extemporaneously, I made a remark, a characterization about myself as a minority podcaster, and it was only when I was listening the next day that I realized exactly and explicitly what I said. That is not what I meant. I am not in any way a minority. I am a cis white male. It's very easy to find that out on the internet. I'm hopefully super transparent about who I am with my online presence. What I meant to communicate, despite misspeaking in that moment, was a minor podcaster, probably better put as a D-list podcaster. I'm sorry if that caused any confusion, uh, and I just want to be super, super clear when I make mistakes like that what my intent was, and make appropriate apologies for uh, any inconvenience, irritation, frustration, or problems that might arise from me misspeaking. This is just one of the risks that comes with speaking off the cuff, uh, as I have in the last couple of episodes. Hopefully, this scripted feature that I'm about to share is a little bit more polished, and I won't have to publish any sort of apology or, or errata after the fact. In a tired moment, a few years ago, working at my last job at a think tank, I completely snapped a colleague. I regret that moment and think about it a lot since. We were enjoying a meal and some drinks after several hard days of work. She was clearly feeling amped up by the work. Much of what we did involved calling bullshit on internet service providers and trying to help an FCC before Tom Wheeler do the right things on open access to networks. She started in on how important our work was, that we need to do everything we could to protect the internet, more even than we already had been doing. She had recently started funding some other work in the space of cryptography and circumvention tools. I suppose part of me resented that she got the opportunity to work on new things, 
while I was desperately burning out and drowning in the work that still needed doing. When I pushed back, her argument shifted to how exceptional the internet is. No technology worked like the internet did. Nothing has caused so much change in so little time. The internet can help realize more good than any other tool that had come before. I escalated, unfortunately raising my voice, trying to call bullshit on the notion that the internet is as special as she was making it out. I regret, regret how I handled my irritation. I think my reasons for getting frustrated, though, are valid. That thinking the internet is exceptional devalues the history of technology that came before and potentially blinds us to its limits and its faults. Many people propose the internet is unlike anything that has come before. No communication technology has connected so many people in the same way. The internet is built on open protocols, meaning in theory anyone can connect any device, service, or application. You may still have to buy, beg, or borrow connectivity to the wider internet, but everything else you can build for yourself. I get where they're coming from, to a degree. Some of my proudest moments in my last job were working on Commotion. Commotion was documentation together with software that helped communities with need to cheaply and effectively build out their own networks. My colleagues worked hard to make the instructions understandable by all kinds of people, not only those experienced, interested, or expert in technology. They even used existing networks in developing these materials, sharing lessons learned, use cases and examples from successful community networks. Neighborhoods using Commotion often did so in order to buy internet connectivity together, then share it through the links that they had set up themselves, making it available to people who might not otherwise have the means. Once they established a network, they could offer their own local services. One workshop in an underprivileged su suburb of New York taught interested people how to build just such applications. Communication is now truly egalitarian. Anyone can find and talk with anyone else anywhere, near or far. To find or create a group around some particular interest, you used to be limited by geography. Maybe someone with the same or similar interests lived nearby. Previous technologies like post, telegraph, or telephone might work past that if you already knew where to find like-minded people. Even then, the costs often associated with them limited the scale of such groups. The number of people you could reach with these older channels was drastically smaller than the potential total number of people in the world with the same or similar affinity. With the internet, you could find and form groups around the most obscure interests from members connected all over the globe. This gives outlet comfort and support to an unimaginable number of people. No one ever need feel excluded again, alienated, or marginalized. For groups of people with more diverse interests looking to connect more broadly, everyday new ways of communicating come into being, from video conferences, a, a pipe dream of just a few generations before, to ephemeral self-evaporating messaging and media that produce a heretofore unknown immediacy, intimacy, and anonymity. Interest and inventiveness often combine, allowing specialized groups to find each other and adapt network tools to their common passion, for example, sharing plans or patterns for particular hands-on crafts, or sharing personal photos, videos, and voice recordings. Some people argue that we have to defend the internet because it is exceptional. If we don't, then untold harm will be done to those who rely on it. Without the internet, many people would lose the benefits that come with connectivity, Access to social welfare systems has evolved from in-person and paper-based, adopting new channels, usually once the rest of society takes them for granted. For instance, in-person interaction gave way, at least in part, to posts and telephone. Now, 
No channel has been so thoroughly adopted for these programs as the internet, probably due to how services can be crafted to offer forms, chat, voice, or whatever is needed to transact for the desired benefits. Many social benefits now assume that online access is the default, despite many places where access is still unaffordable or non-existent. The net adds capabilities not possible or easily realized before, such as harnessing encryption to offer much stronger assurances of privacy, assurances that make social services safer and more likely to be used. The most important thing is we have to defend it at all costs, above and beyond any other means of communication available to at-risk communities. The stakes are so much higher now. We have so much more to lose. There is no room for debate or deeper reflection on antecedents. The good of defending the internet is self-apparent. This rises to the level of a moral panic, the spreading of fear if we don't take some action, whether that fear has any basis in reality or not. When the internet is subject of a panic, then, as often as not, there are defenders who immediately react, equally without consideration of the merits of any of those fears. Shortly after my own family got a personal computer when I was growing up, I remember connecting to my first bulletin board system, or BBS. My dad's business relied heavily on a mini-computer. Even before we had that PC, we had terminals, a teletype, and modems in the house. We used to connect to his office mini to play games, but BBSs were a whole other world, mostly because there were so many more people to connect with. The internet may carry this connectedness to a much higher degree, but was hardly the first system that allowed for open connections and the inventive ways people could make use of it. We had networks anyone connect to already, though they were perhaps more piecemeal and ad hoc. In college, I remember hanging out with friends who also used BBSs. Many of them logged into systems that used FidoNet, an early internetwork in the technical sense of that word. FidoNet was developed in the early 80s after the creation of ARPANET, which would eventually go on to become the internet, but well before the internet was open to public and commercial use. BBS operators could connect their systems to FidoNet and through them reach other connected boards. Absent the sort of infrastructure that often came even with early internet connectivity, FidoNet relied more on store and forward connectivity. If you wanted to reach someone on another board, your local BBS would queue up your messages, then forward them when it was connected, uh, the destination board being available to receive. Early applications on the internet were also intermittent or in some ways asynchronous, like uh, Unix to Unix copy, or UCP and Usenet, and had to deal with the same kind of periodic connectivity among early adopters. BBSs relied on the telephone system, not the first thing you think of in terms of openness. Thanks to the Carter phone ruling before it hush a phone, the then monopoly AT&T had to allow third-party devices so long as they didn't damage their network. This paved the way for modems, definitely a democratizing technology that allowed early personal computers to connect to each other, and for enterprising individuals to run these bulletin boards. The internet we take for granted today arguably didn't become so exceptional until it was open to the public so these same technologies could be used to get online with early ISPs and internet-connected services alongside of the existing BBSs. If we fail to defend the internet, people will find another way. Look at existing closed societies. There is, by definition, not a lot of information to understand them, but there is enough to get a sense that the people are resilient. When I was working on a program at that think tank to help communities in Cuba connect, I was surprised to learn 
how people there worked around a controlling repressive government. You and I may take for granted that everything we could want to know or learn is wireless and immediately at our fingertips. On the island, before the recent thaw anyway, things were definitely slower and less abundant, but people still found ways to share. Media is passed person-to-person on portable hard drives and USB sticks, and places starred reviews on Amazon and Netflix, the people handing you the media gave you their impression in person and pass along what they've heard from others. If you followed the Arab Spring at, at all, you saw this resilience in action. Protesters used what services they could to connect and organize. When access points were cut off, they routed around them, often with help from abroad. In blindly assuming we have to do all we can to defend the internet, we may keep ourselves from seeing the much more complicated outcomes it yields. There is no doubt in my mind that connectivity, however it is achieved, helps grassroots movements. At the same time, it provides unparalleled means for authoritarian regimes to surveil and interfere. Building resilient networks that foil the powerful and protect the powerless is incredibly hard. That effort's not helped by ignoring the risks that are just as amplified as the rewards. Radical acceptance is the idea that we are better served by accepting things as they are, deeply and profoundly. Rather than denying circumstances we didn't expect or don't like, or hoping that our situation is better than it really is. We may agree or we may not with events and actors contributing to where we find ourselves. If we do not agree with them, and we do not accept them, we can't make effective change. Our decisions are clouded by hope and fear. The change we might try to make won't be grounded in reality and likely will be doomed to failure. Change should start with where we actually are to be most effective. I keep thinking about the election at the end of last year. Who doesn't? I don't agree with the outcome, especially given what's unfolded since. Denying what is going on isn't going to help anything. Radically accepting what happened means trying to understand why and how we got here. Especially now that I'm feeling increasingly disenfranchised, I have to accept, even if I disagree, that more people of a different leaning were equally or more disenfranchised. By accepting, I can turn my mind to change. I can prepare for the fights in front of us now, like privacy and net neutrality at the FCC. I can get ready for the midterm elections, helping to get the word out in districts where the vote will make the most difference. I can begin to understand why people may have voted the way they did and reach out to try to foster some better understanding. My acceptance, my radical acceptance, helps me better hold to optimism while remaining thoroughly practical. The internet very well may be unique from systems that have come before. Regardless, I do want to be clear that I believe it is entirely worth defending and preserving. I'm trying to accept it for what it is while working to advocate for and defend its benefits. Unique or not, the internet definitely bears strong resemblance to tools that have come before. That's not accidental. The progress of technology is often fueled by ideas that have come before, evolving through novel combinations and applications. In order to frame how best to defend the new opportunities the internet or any new technology provides us, we have to understand what they build on, the lessons that history teaches us. 
those wishing to subvert the internet for their own ends, whether those are market-based, such as monopolists, oligopolists, and incumbents, or authoritarian, such as regimes threatened by the free exchange of ideas via any media, are served best by a profound ignorance of the past. Our toolbox for routing around censorship is vastly limited if all we know about is the most recent crop of tools and techniques. During the Arab Spring, alongside social media and encrypted channels that we're still talking about today, activist groups like Telecomics set up plain old dial-up lines in accessible, safer locales. Investing too much in the current, the now, the immediate, may play far more into the hands of those trying to control the net than is wise. If we accept that people connecting to people is more important than exactly how those connections are forged, then we are open to the lessons we can learn from technology past and present. We're better, better able to accept our present, full of hope and threat both, and practically turn our minds to optimism, routing around obstacles as needed with the recall of the depth of history at our backs. By accepting the internet more for what it actually is, then we can better reason about what values it preserves in which it dissolves. Any action we take won't be driven by some high emotion about the thing itself. Rather, we will hopefully be able to turn our minds to the true values at stake and continue to evolve the internet in a way harmonious with those values. That's going to do it for this episode. As always, I want to thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed the program, please do tell a friend. If you have a question, suggestion, or correction, you can send those to feedback at thecommandline.net, or you're welcome to record a bit of audio with your smart device and send it to the same place. Until next time, don't forget to hack your world. I would like to thank the Internet Archive for media hosting and bandwidth. The views expressed on this program are my own and where applicable those of my guests and in no way reflect those of my employer or anyone else. This show is produced from 100% recycled bits. Except where noted, permission to recycle those further is granted under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. That means you're free to change this show as much as you like as long as you don't alter credits and you share your changes under the same license.